0: taking as a little parenthesis in our study in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're we're looking at at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I am still teaching through that, as a matter of fact, at church. So if you go onto the church website, you'll find I think there's five, six, seven lessons there, and we're just kind of highlighting some of it in these two weeks. So the church website is EVBC. E is in Edward, V is in Victor, B is in Boyce, C is in Charlie, evbc.org, and all of that First Corinthians stuff is there. The reason we chose this is obviously it ties into this time of the year. First Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter, and Paul is really dealing with, and as you look through this chapter, it becomes clear, Paul's really dealing with this. He's really dealing with what he says in verse 12. If Christ is preached, then he's been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? The church of Corinth was confused on this. Here was their confusion. What happens to us when we die? A very big question. When we die, what happens? And that is really man's battle. Uh, we, death seems to bring us face to face with that. If you've ever been, my senior of high school, I had a friend who uh, one Saturday was electrocuted. Boom. And I remember sitting at 29th Street and Brady in a, uh, in a parking lot of a Schlegel's drugstore wondering, Whoa, what's life all about? What is this? It's not fair. How do you respond? I was with a buddy, and we just kind of sat in his car and just kind of looked at each other. I didn't even know what to say. Have you ever been around a school, even now where a kid's killed in a car accident or something? It has a profound effect. What happens when you die? The world has answers. Let me, let's me run down them. One of them is extinction. You just die and that's it. This is all there is. Boom, it's over. The other one is, another one is, kind of out of the golf illustration, is you get a mulligan. Uh, you just do it over again. Reincarnation is what that's called. Uh, 33% of the American public say they believe in reincarnation. That's a staggering number. 33% say they believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is the idea that you live this life over again. Larry Wright used to describe it this way, if at first you don't succeed, die, die again. That was kind of how we looked at it. So the principle is this. You live your life. At the end, there's a, a judge. And if you lived a better life, a good life, you come back as a better life form. If you live a bad life, you come back as a lower life form. A Democrat or a... Something, I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. Never, ever, ever. And I mean that. We can't make politics a dividing issue. Um, Interestingly enough, staying on this reincarnation, I saw a poll the other day. Listen to this, you've got to listen closely or you'll miss, you'll miss the irony of this. <laughs> 79% of the American public think they're going to heaven. 79% of the American public think they're going to heaven. 73% believe there's life after death. I don't know. And their vote counts as much as yours. That's what kills me. Uh, there's a, another view, and Paul really is dealing with that in this chapter. It, it's the Greek philosophical view that permeates a lot of Greek thought, and it's this that the body is bad, and everything material is bad, that the spirit is good. The worst thing a Greek could imagine would be to get to the end of your life, die, have your soul released from this body, and then put back into it. They can't imagine anything worse than that. So what happens? What happens to us when we die? What happens to our body really is the question that he's asking. So that's what he's dealing with. We saw last time that before Paul begins to answer that question, he talks about the gospel. Because what, here's what he's going to say, I'll give you the punchline, is that we as Christians, those of us who've placed our faith and trust in Christ, we're going to rise from the dead. Our body's going to uh, uh, be changed, we'll be moved into a glorified body, and we'll live eternally in that. Uh, it, it, it appears that there'll be no marriage, will we'll really even the family probably in heaven not necessarily exist. There'll be no sex. Some of you are having heaven right here on earth. There'll be no sex. Um, there will be a glorified body. And he's going to deal with that. Before he can talk about that, he has to talk about the gospel. Here's the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried in, that he rose again. As, as Paul talks about Christ in this chapter, not one time does he talk about Jesus' life. The life of Jesus Christ isn't going to save you. In fact, you can get distracted almost, cut me slack here now, on the teachings of Christ and following the teachings of Christ to the exclusion of dealing with the sin issue in your life. Many great... Moral leaders have been followers of Christ's teaching. But Jesus died for our sin. You can't separate that. Why did he die? He died for our sin. And he was buried and he rose again. And then here's what he said. If you're following along verse uh, 5. And then Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12 and then to 500 at one time. Many of those, Paul says, are still alive. Understand, he's writing this about 20, 23 years after uh, the resurrection, so he's saying this. Listen, if you doubt what I'm saying, you want to know that Christ rose from the dead. There's eyewitnesses. And then he writes this. And I want to spend, I want to try to budget my time wisely today. I want to spend about 15 or 20 minutes on this and then the last 15 or 20 minutes on the next section. I want to look at, at, at Paul's life, Paul's view of himself and how it relates to you. He says, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Last of all, has the idea that that was the end of those appearances. In the sequence, this is it. But Paul's also saying Christ's appearance to him is just as valid as appearance to Peter and to the 500 and to the others. Paul gets autobiographical here. Here's what he says. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Uh, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. Paul, in my mind, has a very accurate view of himself. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Listen closely. This is Paul speaking autobiographically. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Paul says, listen, when you want to line up the sinners, you want to see the chief among sinners, it's me. Now, I, I'm, I'll probably take this to an extreme, but, but I hope I make my point here. If a guy came into our church today and said, I'm the chief among sinners, you'd all crowd around him and say, listen, don't you feel badly about yourself like that? You've got low self-esteem. You shouldn't have that view at all. You're not that bad, are you? partly that's what's wrong with the church today. We're trying to fix everybody way too fast. If somebody's suffering, the first thing we try to do is alleviate the pain. Suffering has a purpose and suffering has a reason. In fact, if Paul didn't have this view about himself, he would have never become a Christian at all. Uh, I want to really make this point. I, I, I have basically I speak in a, in a church setting I speak here and then I travel and speak I do really well in the first two settings when I travel it's a little harder I've discovered that I'm kind of an acquired taste uh, you, you gotta know me and you gotta appreciate me so if you're here for the first time and you're not quite figured it out yet I'm really, am yeah, a good guy it just takes a little while for you to draw that kind of conclusion <laughs> When I'm out, one of the things and points that I'll make regularly is this. Unless you've been converted like the Apostle Paul, you have not been converted at all. Boy, and you can see people going, Here's what we're talking about. Not circumstances. we got Christians all through this room. But none of them were converted on the road to Damascus. What I'm talking about is this same recognition that the Apostle had. If you don't have this same recognition that the Apostle had, That you are a sinful person. And don't you gloss over that. Don't you go, oh, I'm a sinful person. But we're all sinners. Well, we're not talking about everybody else. We're talking about you. You're a sinful person. Nobody's perfect. That means everybody's flawed. And that flaw is sin. Sin is when I digress from the holy, righteous, perfect will of God. God. And you and I live at a time that says, oh, boys will be boys. I know it's tough out there. Everybody makes mistakes. That's not it. When I sin, I've sinned against the holy God. Paul says, I'm chief among sinners. He looks at his own life. You need to do that. That's what happened to Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember the story? In the year that King Uzziah died, it was 739 B.C., uh, Isaiah had a view, and it was a, it, it was a vision of God. And he sees him seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And his train of the robe fills the temple. I'm in with this wedding coming up. I'm into trains right now. Trains of robes. My daughter called not long ago, Haley, and said, Dad, what are you doing Tuesday night? And I said, I said, what time? She said, five. I said, honey, I got a meeting that starts at two that's going to go to six. I said, "What do you need?" And she said, "Well, at five i 'm being fitted for my wedding dress. Will you come? Will you be there?" I said, "You bet I'll just move this other stuff around." And I walked out and, and I'm there and, and and she's in this fitting room, and I'm kind of out there and, and I'm ready for it, I think. And she comes out and she looks un- she looks so beautiful and it, and, it's, and it's a a corset type. I'll tell you all about it because none of you are going to be invited to the wedding. Um, <laughs> none of you are going to see it. It's this corset wedding dress, and then she looks about this big around and so fragile, and she just looks like a porcelain doll, and, and she comes out. Well, Sarah's behind her, and she's moving this train, and they put her up like this to get fitted for the dress. And all of her life, we were at a wedding. Oh, the kids weren't very old, and, and the bride tripped. And at that point, Haley made a determination she would be married barefooted. And so she's there barefooted as they're fitting this thing. I said, honey, are you sure you don't want some ballet slippers or something? She said, all I want is you next to me going down the aisle. Oh, okay, I can do that. I'm sucking gas here, babe. (laughs) I don't know if this is going to work. Well, I'm into trains. But that train of that beautiful wedding dress doesn't compare to the vision Isaiah had and he sees him high and lifted up he sees something called seraphim it's the only time we hear of them in scripture they had six wings two to cover their face and two to cover their feet and two to fly and the idea there is that they were available to service their whole life was servicing god that's the vision he has it's in the year that king Uzziah died Uzziah had reigned for 52 years uh, one author suggests that outside of David, he was probably the best king that Israel ever had. He uh, had got a little carried away with how good he was and became proud and, and assumed the role of paris that was set aside for a special group of men. He wasn't one of them, so God struck him with leprosy. But he reigned for 52 years, and now he's dead. And, and there's a great contrast here. And the king, and you're the king. Uzziah dies. I see the Lord mighty, exalted, lifted up. Look at the contrast. Here's this earthly king with leprosy who's faded from the scene. He's the eternal God forever. He has this view. And, and all of a sudden, he uh, hears this voice. It's the voice of these seraphim calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory, and the foundations of the threshold shake and tremble at this moment, and the temple fills with smoke. John MacArthur writes this, The shaking and the smoke symbolize God's holiness as it relates to His wrath and His judgment. Now, I get all that to get Isaiah 6, 5. It says this, Then... Very important word. That means we're in sequence here. After Isaiah had seen the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the mightiness of God, the purity of God, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, then Isaiah said, woe to me, for I am ruined. King James says, woe to me, for I'm undone. One author writes this, So far as we know, Isaiah was a young man of excellent character. No doubt he had the confidence and respect of all who knew him. The probabilities are his life was above reproach. But when he got a glimpse of the infinite holiness of God, he cried out, Woe to me, for I'm undone. My point is, unless you've come to that point, you haven't been converted at all. Somebody gave me a book the other day, and they said, "Will you read it? And I told them what I tell everybody. I doubt it. Do you need it back? Because if the answer is, yeah, I'll give it to you right now, and if it's no, I'll keep it. But if it's a book that you need back, I just don't, don't give it to me. So that cuts down on books. So this guy said, No, you can keep it. Uh, and I said, uh, Nuts. Uh, uh, <laughs> but the whole premise of the book is real basic. It's that the churches today are ineffective and all screwed up. And then he's trying to understand why. What's wrong with the church? Here you go. Let me help you out here. This is real easy. You don't need five hundred pages on this. You need one paragraph. You don't need even one paragraph. One one sentence. The church is filled with unconverted people. <laughs> you didn't. You weren't sitting there Sunday looking around going, "Man, look at all these Christians." Were you? I wasn't. And I had to look at them seven times. I never stopped and said, "Gee, look at all the Christians." There's some of them. Why is the church ineffective? Because you're not converted. And you live in a system that's very interesting because you'll get invited to a luncheon, a, a nice luncheon at the country club or uh, something out at uh, Mountain Shadows or, or uh, a song, I'm not picking on any, I'm trying to think of something, that, or the Tapatiel, Point Tapatio. And some guy will get up and speak and he's successful in business and he'll talk about how he was struggling and now he's successful and how he found peace even. I found peace. That's not it, my friend. Peace isn't your problem. Your problem is your sin has separated you from God. Your problem is you need a Savior, not peace. Now, will you have peace? Sure. But do you see that distinction? So you have millions of Americans running around thinking they're Christians when they aren't at all who came to some God that they thought would give them peace, and now there's not peace, and now they're angry at God and frustrated with this and frustrated over here and now trying to find a church. I got a thing the other day (laughs) from somebody, and I I shouldn't laugh at this, but it's funny. And and they're starting a church, and I admire that work. But they're saying, come and join us on Easter Sunday. Now, here's why. Not because Jesus is risen but because they have Starbucks and Krispy Kreme. So I told all our people, go over there and eat after this because we don't have any of that stuff, okay? If I come for Starbucks and Krispy Kreme, all I got a bunch of people with sugar highs and caffeine highs. I need somebody that's got a Jesus high because they've truly been converted. Do you see that? Woe to me for I'm undone. I'm going to whack this away by five more minutes longer if I could because inevitably we have people in this room who think, for example, that they're okay. I'm basically a good person. And the way that they arrive at that conclusion is they look at everybody else and they say I'm better than they are. I remember one time in my life, I was at a particularly low time, it was during my, really I was doing a lot of drinking, a lot of drinking. And I'm one night with a buddy at a bar and I'm lamenting what what a derelict I am. And uh, he's trying to cheer me up. He says, uh, Trades, I think you're too hard on yourself. I said, really? He's, yeah. He said, you got value, my friend. I said, you're kidding. He said, "Nope, you got value. I said, well, what is it? And he said, you can always be used as a bad example. <laughs> and that was the nicest thing he could think to say about me. But in reality, it was true. I was happy that I had that. I thought, well, I must have some purpose in life. At least people... I've been in the prisons, maybe you have too, and it's a funny system in there. Because here you've got a guy who has who is, is done armed robbery, uh, uh, pistol-whip people, he's in there for 20 years, and he's pointing across the room and saying, that guy over there is really bad. That guy over there is really bad. And that guy over there, well, that's a pedophile, that's the worst. That guy's over It's funny. I'm okay. I, I was at Florence one time, met 25 guys. Not one of them committed the crime they were accused of very interesting phenomena to me incarcerating a lot of innocent people and that's how they do it it happens in here I have had this happen on so many occasions somebody will walk in and they'll go look at that well that's Bob does Bob does Bob come here often yeah he's here all the time he goes oh jeez I'm telling you that guy is a wild man he'll walk away and Bob will come up and he'll point at the guy that was pointing at him and say does he come here all the time I'll say yeah he goes you gotta be kidding me There's no way. See, as long as we can do that, we're all right. Here's what God does. He strips away all that comparison, and he says, You compare your life to me. You don't look around and go, I'm okay, look at them. You, like Isaiah, who was a pretty good guy. The schools are split, by the way, on this. Some believe Isaiah was already a prophet at this point in time. Others believe this was the inaugural event of his uh, career as a prophet. In either case, he was a man of high esteem. A man that you would look at and say, that guy's got it all together. And there wasn't some deep, dark sin that came out of the closet. What there was was just sin. Because all sin is deep and dark. And it's a rebellion against God. He says, woe to me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Let me tell you how you know if you're on the right track in self-examination. Number one, when you look at yourself, you see your weaknesses and your sins. Here's what I do, and I'm honest about it. When I look at you, I see your weaknesses and sins. When I look at me, I tend to see my strengths. When I'm humble before the Lord, that flips. I see your strengths in my sins and my weaknesses. Hey, here's the second thing. All of a sudden, if I really have an anchored view of myself, I'm compelled to spend time in prayer. It's the most natural thing in the world. If I'm a physical beggar, if I need to beg down on the street corner to get my food for the day, then I'm out there begging. If I'm a spiritual beggar, that the most natural thing in the world should be for me to come to my Father broken every day. Here's the third thing. My prayer life is filled with praise and thanksgiving. I'm praising Him for who He is. Right after Paul says, I'm the least of these, I don't deserve To be an apostle, he says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you understand that's your prayer too? If you're a Christian today, it's by God's grace. Here's another thing. If I'm humble before him, I take my eyes off of myself and I place them on him. Here's the last thing. No matter how bad my circumstances are, I quit complaining because I know they could be worse. I uh, yeah, I'm Tom, and yesterday I watched Oprah. Okay, let's get it out of the way. I do it for you, and you know that. Actually, it was totally accidental. I turned on the TV, I sat down, and I literally fell asleep. Uh, and when I woke up, Michael J. Fox was on, talking about Parkinson's disease. And there's a guy in there by the name of Morton Kondraki. Do you know that name, some of you? He's a columnist, TV commentator. used to be on the McLaughlin Group. And I never really liked the guy a whole lot. I don't know him, but I've made it a policy to never let that stand in the way of making these judgments. Um, <laughs> and he was on there because his wife has Parkinson's disease, and they did a great story. In fact, and this is just me, they, they should have blown off Michael J. Fox because Kondraki was the story, I thought. They showed him pictures of him meeting his wife in 1967, and they were describing her as this vivacious. You could just see it in the pictures. There were no sound. She's smiling. She was a little pistol. You could see that little twinkle. And they get married, and they start to have these uh, issues in life. He's an alcoholic, which I never knew about him. And you know, all of a sudden, one day, she's got a little twitch in her finger, and that becomes Parkinson's. And she's in right now full blown Parkinson's. You should see her. She looks so frail. Her skin is just all really tight, and she's hollowed out, and her hair is just just snow white. And then they show him just having to help her move. And Kondraki's talking, and he said, there's nobody I'd rather spend a moment with than her. And he gives her a little kiss. And I'm telling you, it was an extraordinary moment. He talks about his love. He talks about his faith. I have no idea what his faith is in. But he talks about how this has deepened his faith. And he he sees that in his life. And he understands that even then, things could be a lot worse. He said, I'm so great." She can't speak any longer. And that used to be her deal. And he said, no matter how bad it is, this is is great. Well, all of a sudden, God gives provision to Isaiah. He gives him forgiveness. And then Isaiah 6, 8. The Lord says, who should I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. If you're frustrated in your life, in your Christian life, is it possible that you're saying, here I am, send me, but you've never gone through the steps of conversion? i want to go back to what I said before. Church is filled. I don't know North Phoenix Baptist Church from a post. I don't know anything that goes on here. I've got no view other than we send people here, and they have been so gracious to us beyond anything we could imagine. But I'll guarantee you they have people working in their children's nursery that aren't Christians in their junior high and their high school. And I'll guarantee you that there's people that are here that are frustrated because there are at every church in their work. And the reason is they're trying to do a bunch of God stuff But their heart's never been converted. Has your heart been converted? See, that's what happens. And and, and I understand this is a little bit of a side trip. But that's what happens here in Paul's life. I am the least of all worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but I am. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. The New Living Translation is helpful here. It says this. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach. The important thing is that you believed what we preached. Now, here's the issue. Verse 12. We've got about 17 minutes left, and we'll spend the rest of the time on this verse 12. If Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Paul does a marvelous, obviously he's writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so you would expect it to be pretty good. Uh, Paul does a marvelous teaching technique here. He starts to ask questions. He knows the gospel's true. He knows that Christ has been raised from the dead, but he does this game for a minute. What if Have you been in the bookstore to see those books? There's two or three or four volumes of them now that say, what if, what if Pearl Harbor never happened? What if John Wilkes Booth never shot Lincoln? You know, what if, what if? Paul does a little version of this. What if Jesus Christ never was raised from the dead? So he plays the game, begins in verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised from the dead. Remember the context now. Their question is this. What happens? We don't rise from the dead, do we? And Paul says, well, if we don't rise from the dead, and if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. John, by the way, has a vision of Christ that he records in Revelation 117, and he says this, When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, I'm the first of the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but now I am alive. So we know he's alive. Paul is not for a second suggesting that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but he said, You know what? If he didn't rise from the dead, Verse 14, If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. The word vain here means useless, uh, fruitless, of no purpose. A way I describe it, we have out in back of our house, we have a tree, an ornamental tangerine tree. Why? I mean, I, I don't get it. And it has literally, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands of tangerines. You will watch the branches bend with this fruit. It's ornamental. By definition, it's useless, other than to look at. Uh, periodically, the gardener won't keep up her duties. That'd be Susan. And, 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 and what happens is, those tangerines get, and they sit down under in, down in the rocks that are at the ba- bottom of that, and the leaves will come off, and you'll go out and you'll rake. Have you ever had this? And you can smell that pungent, sad smell of that, those overripe, tangerines, and you reach down in the leaves and you pick it up and it starts to just drip down your arm. You ever had that happen? Think of that as the word vain, useless. He said, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. The gospel's a bad joke. I'm not helping you, I'm hurting you. And your faith is in vain. In other words, you're believing in a dead Savior, he ain't going to do you any good. If last Sunday's celebration wasn't a factual, real event, then our whole faith is a waste of time. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is a bad, bad joke. That's why it's so harmful when you're in a church or you've got a pastor. I was listening to one of those guys on the radio the other day, and they were saying, "Listen, Jesus Christ never rose." from the dead if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead then this whole thing is a waste of time Priority living is a waste of time your faith is a waste of time your service in the church is a waste of time your driving and making decisions in your life based on what God has to say is a waste of time that's the point that he makes And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Verse 15, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God. In other words, we're lying to you. I'm lying. Peter's lying. James is lying. The 500 are lying. In a sense, it's even deeper than that. Jesus Christ is lying because he said he would rise from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's a liar. This whole thing is a lie. Verse 16, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, not even Christ has been raised from the dead. He reiterates the point. And he said, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. Verse 17, and you're still in your sins. Here was the point that I was trying to make Easter Sunday. There's something in your life, and there's something missing, and you think the answer is a material thing, a person, a place. An object. That's why you're empty. That's why you're frustrated. I watched, okay, I watched the other day, and these Diamondbacks got their big old honking World Series ring. That's a cool deal. That'd be really neat. I'd love to have one. Okay? But they lost. Didn't they lose last night? I don't know. I didn't stay awake long enough. They got to lose. They lost. I mean, they lost last night. They must be losers. Isn't that what happens when you lose? And then all of a sudden, you you don't necessarily win the pennant this year, and then are you a loser? Or worse yet, you do win it this year. Because then you got a three-peat, and then four-peat, and then five-peat, and then six-peat, and then seven-peat. And somewhere, you're going to peter out on this deal, and you're out of (laughs) peats. And when you do, you're a loser. (coughs) That's what happens. I'm talking to a kid the other day. I said, how old are you? Ten. I said, how old would you like to be? You could be any age. Thirteen. <laughs> I remember when I was 13, that's what made me laugh. I used to sit in the car in the garage with the garage door down and no keys pretending I was driving. I couldn't wait to drive. The day I turned 16, I was out there. I got my driver's license. I came home that night. I said, I got a driver's license. Give me those keys, baby. And a boom, off I go. I never went to the library my whole life till I got a driver's license. Boom, then I'm in the library every night. Never always made it exactly to the library, but boom, I was down there every night. You know what happens now? When it's time to go somewhere, I take the keys, throw them in the air, and say, okay, whoever catches them drives because I don't ever want to drive again in my life. When I'm 16, I want to get out of high school. when I'm out of high school, I want to get a college. I don't want to get into college. I want to get into that college. I want to get into that program. I want to get out. I want to get that job. I want to be a manager in that place. I want to succeed there. If I can get her to go out with me, I'll be happy if I can get her to go study with me, I'll be happy if I can get her to marry me, I'll be happy. If I can get her to divorce me, I'll be even happier. And there's just no end to this thing. And it just goes on and on. Have you had that in your life? maybe at a different place? If I can just get a different house, if I can just get a new clothes, if I can get that car, Here's what you're trying to do. You're acknowledging there's something missing. Everybody realizes there's something missing. But you've misdiagnosed the cure. What you have is not a material need. What you have is a spiritual need. And you cannot satisfy spiritual needs with material things. You can for a moment, but only a moment. This will sound like an odd statement. I like to try to watch a lot of television during Holy Week because I know I'm going to get great illustrations. And I had to be patient cuz CNN didn't run the story until until uh, Saturday. But they had these guys in the Philippines and they're walking 3 miles on crushed glass barefoot. As they're doing it they're whipping themselves. And and at the end, their, their feet are just bloody, just shredded by the glass. Their back is just a mass of blood. And the CNN commentator said this, They're doing this for the forgiveness of their sins. Everybody senses something's missing. Sally Field says this, Since I was a little girl, there's been something in my life. I'll call it a yearning. Everybody senses it. What's missing is, where do I go with this guilt? How do I find meaning and purpose? See, if Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead, Paul says, you're still in your sins. All those sins from the past, still got to pay for them. All those sins today, all those sins in the future, there's no hope. See, that's hopeless right there. You know what? That's what hell is. That's hell is me stuck there with no hope, paying every moment of eternity for my sin. It, if Christ didn't rise from the dead. That's where I am. Look at verse 18. This is interesting. And those who have fallen asleep, in other words, those who've died, they've perished. They have no hope. There's kind of, and I didn't read this anywhere else, so it's just me. Even if it's hopeless now, at least I'm still alive. Maybe they'll find a cure for sin in my lifetime. <laughs> you know? You have guys that freeze their body. I think there's 465 of them right now who have their bodies frozen. And they're, and they're and basically, they have terminal disease. The body's frozen until they hope they find a cure. If I'm alive, at least maybe there's some hope that somehow something would happen. But what about those who have died? Those who have died are dead with no hope. So he says this in verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are to be most pitied. In other words, if Christ is still dead, not only can he not help us with regard to payment of sin, not only can he not help us with regard to eternity, he can't help us in this life now. I guarantee you, when I sit with this family in about 50 minutes, they're going to say, I couldn't get through this without Jesus. This man's mother is 83. She's still alive. This is the second son she's had die of cancer. And, 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 and the other day, she's just been doing so great... And just the other day when we're picking songs and stuff for the service today, she just started to, die, to cry as she talked about her sons and her daughter coming in. And yet there's a peace there. What's the peace? Is she conned herself into something? No. She understands that if I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that my eternal destiny is secure. And that ultimately all of the pain is gone and all of the suffering is gone and all of the tears are gone, not based on one thing that I can do. If I could do anything today, it's to speak to those of you who are non-Christians and try to convince you, and I guess better stated, have the Holy Spirit convince you, that your sin must be paid for and there's nothing you can do to pay for it. You can't be good enough. Haven't you tried? Aren't you a Haven't you pooped yourself out trying to be good enough? There's no church that you can join. There's no function you can perform. There's one cure, and that's Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, after this little excursion of just a few verses where Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, our preaching is a waste. Your faith is a waste. We're liars. You're still guilty. Those who've died are still there. Our our present and our future is hopeless. After that, Paul can't hang on very long. He says this, but now... Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. That term first fruits doesn't mean much to us. The Jew understood it under ceremonial and sacrificial law. He understood that you brought at the beginning of a harvest first fruits to the priest. It was a symbol of those things that were to come. It was a promise of those things that were to be harvested. Christ rises first a promise of those who are in him who one day rise. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to him in repentance and faith? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? We meet so many people from so many diverse religious backgrounds, from very formal backgrounds, Episcopalian, um, uh, Catholic. Very ritualistic, formal backgrounds that say go through this and do through this. Lutheran. Uh, we see some that are kind of more uh, uh, ut- uh, ut- ut- utarian. Uh, we'll see all sorts of, of, of different backgrounds. We'll see some that, that... We're seeing a growing number of students who have no background at all. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know what you believe, but I do know what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that unless you know Jesus Christ in a personal way, number one, you spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. Number two, this life right now has no meaning and no purpose. It's just to go from one struggle to the next, to the next, to the next. Momentary highs, momentary relief, and then back to the struggle. No satisfaction. I love this, this thought. If I'm not a Christian, this is as close to heaven as I'm ever going to get. If I'm a Christian, this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. We are uh, currently studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Next week we return to that study. And what Jesus is doing there is really just expanding what Paul's talked about. He's talking about, uh, to us, what the Christian life begins to look like. And here's the point that we've made so far, and it becomes really the point all through that Sermon on the Mount, that what's at issue is not our action as much as our heart. God looks at the inside. That's why we fool each other. That's why we're so good at it. But God looks at the heart. Where's your heart? Compliant but rebellious. <laughs> we see that a lot with students. Let me tell you, if you got, if you're a parent of teenagers and even younger kids, don't confuse compliance with conversion. Just because a kid says yes, sir, yes, ma'am, you bet, sir, don't you for a second think they're converted. You got a little spiritual Eddie Haskell going there is what you got going, <laughs> huh? Where's their heart? Now, that ultimately is going to be visible in what they do. We'll pick up there next week. Uh, we'll have that special tape, just talking about the resurrection and how it applies to you. That'll be ready next week. Father, help us uh, see this truth and let it affect our lives. God, thank you that we can have a deep, personal conviction of our sin. And that doesn't move us to despair That moves us to you. God, we need you. Our sin is so horrific, so awful, beyond really anything we can begin to comprehend. It separates us from you. It separates us from life as it was meant to be. It makes relationships hard. God, we pray for your spirit to touch the people in this room. To those who are Christians, God, I pray that you just give us comfort to continue to live a life that brings honor and glory to you, to take advantage of the opportunity we have to speak the truth and live the truth. God, to those that are not Christians, I pray today that that you touch their heart. In a sense, I pray that you'd make them absolutely miserable, so uncomfortable, so burdened with this idea of forgiveness and how they can't find it and they've tried everywhere god they've tried stuff they've tried material things they've tried a little bit of booze a little bit of dope sex they've tried everything and there's nothing ultimately that fulfills they've tried retirement they've tried another job they've tried and started there they've tried everything and yet as they sit here today they're empty inside help them see that that's a spiritual void God, would you give him the courage to talk to the person that invited him today to ask him, what does it mean to be a Christian? How can I find that forgiveness for my sin? God, that's a work of your spirit. And we thank you that you send your spirit to do that work. God, we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.